Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Coming up. Today we're here to announce that we have arrested Brian Lay Drips for the murder and rape of Angie Dodge. Today, just hearing his name, um, I don't know, I guess I got my air supply back, right? It was a shock. It was, I think it was a shock for everybody. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Good evening. We begin tonight with another example of using new technology and forensics to solve cases. A cigarette butt in this case is the connection between a Canyon County man and a 23-year-old Idaho murder. DNA on that cigarette has been tied to crime scene evidence from the rape and murder of 18-year-old Angie Dodge in Idaho Falls back in 1996. There are significant developments in a case in Idaho. I'm joined by Katie Terhune, web reporter at KTVB in Boise. Katie, tell me what happened back in 1996. This has to do with a young woman by the name of Angie Dodge. Yes. She was an 18-year-old girl living in Idaho Falls, an 18-year-old woman, I should say. Um, And it was a a crime that that town does not see a lot of. Someone broke into her apartment at night while she was sleeping, uh, raped her and stabbed her to death, cut her throat and stabbed her multiple times. I believe she was found uh, when she didn't show up to work. So it was not immediate. Um, neighbors didn't hear anything. It doesn't sound like uh, her, her body was just found later. And from there, the investigation kind of unfurled. So, Katie, what did they know back then? Where did the investigation go? Was there any evidence right away? There was evidence at the crime scene, but in the 90s, obviously, DNA was not as advanced as it is now. So just because you have DNA doesn't mean necessarily that that will lead you to the culprit. Uh, So there was some DNA evidence collected from the scene and um, the Idaho Falls Police Department kind of cast a wide web, it sounded like at first, uh, trying to find a suspect, trying to interview other people. Uh, Brian Drips, the man who ultimately was convicted of the crime, the, the real killer, lived across the street from Angie Dodge at the time. And I believe they even interviewed him, but didn't really focus in on him as a suspect. Uh, instead, they kind of looked at this this group of men, one of whom was uh, Christopher Tapp, who at the time was 20 years old. He was very young. Um, and he sort of became their, their primary suspect. And Angie Dodge still has family alive today, right? Yes. She had brothers and... Uh, I believe her father has since passed away, but her mother is still living. So a suspect is arrested and convicted. And then revelations many years later. Uh, this story involves a false confession too, right? Tell us about that. So with him, he's always said that he was coerced into giving a confession uh, in the interviews that he did with Idaho Falls police detectives. Um if you look back at some of those documents, I mean, they were saying things to him like you'll you'll die in prison if you don't, you know, implicate someone else in the crime or we know you were there. Uh, these were hours long 
conversations with detectives and he said he felt like he was uh, kind of pushed into giving a confession to something that he knew he didn't do just because he was so confused by what the detectives were saying and he was under so much pressure at the time um then of course later he he reversed course and said no i know i I told detectives that i I killed her but i didn't have anything to do with it um but at that point i mean that's kind of hard for a jury to hear all right this man's already confessed to killing this woman police think he did it here's all this evidence uh to i guess take his reversal of that seriously so he was convicted and at that time i believe sentenced to life in prison although that sentence was later later changed and um dropped it down a little bit more. You know, this story has a lot of different elements that, that make it really interesting. And uh, one being this false confession. So often, you know, people can't believe that someone would confess to something as grave as something like this. But uh, if you listen to these interviews and interviews like them, you, you begin to get some insight into that. Yes. Yeah. And um, I mean, this was kind of one of those cases where I, I think a lot of people who heard about it, just like you said, couldn't believe that someone would say they had murdered someone who who they didn't. I mean, that seems like the most obvious thing to avoid in a situation where you're talking to police. If you didn't do anything wrong, absolutely don't say that you did anything wrong. Uh, but in this situation, um, if you've listened to any of those recordings or if you go through those files, uh, he was under a tremendous, tremendous amount of pressure from the police. And it's what's clear now, I guess, with the benefit of hindsight, that he said something that wasn't true and put himself into a situation, uh, you know, put himself in that apartment when he had never been there, confessed to something that he had not done. Katie, eventually the Idaho Innocence Project got involved. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, I'm not exactly sure how they came to his case, but... Um, I know he he found a supporter in Carol Dodge, the the mother of Angie Dodge. She actually, over the course of the the case, over the course of the last 25 years, became convinced that he wasn't the person that killed her daughter, um, that he wasn't in the apartment, that he did not rape her daughter. Uh, and, and she's been kind of a, a supporter of his and has been agitating for years for people to take a second look at the case. And eventually that, that worked and the Idaho Innocence Group took up his, his case and, uh, put some pressure on, on people to take another look. And then just a couple years ago, before the arrest of Ian Drips, he was released from prison. A judge basically looked at the case and said there were enough problems with this original, conversation with detectives, enough problems with the the original trial that it isn't fair to keep him in prison. He was not at that point exonerated. So no one said, we're going to, you know, strike these charges from your record. But at least he was allowed to leave prison. You know, another aspect of this is the fact that her mother was involved in getting this first suspect released from prison. You you don't always see that. That's That's a really difficult situation. And you would think that if someone in your family has been killed, there's a closure that comes along with police caught the guy, he's the right guy, he's in prison where he deserves to be. And to examine that too closely is to mess up all that closure or to open the door to the possibility that you were wrong. And you know whatever satisfaction you felt when Chris Tapp was sentenced was wrong and he's innocent. So, I mean, she confronted that in a way that I think a lot of people might have just closed the door on that in their mind and, and said, there's no way that, that there could have been a mistake. Okay, so he is released, not exonerated. How then is Brian Drips identified and convicted? So Brian Drips is the man who actually killed Angie Dodge. Uh, how that all came together is they had still kept the original DNA connect, co- 
collected at the crime scene, I should say. Uh, so that DNA that they, they took from the crime scene years ago, they had still hung on to. And obviously in the last 25 years, there's been a lot of advancements scientifically in what, what can be done with that DNA. It was actually a really interesting way that they were able to connect drips to this murder. It was through DNA genealogy mapping. So you think of, you know, if they have someone's DNA, your DNA has to be in the database. So if you're a felon and your your DNA has been put in the state database, they could match up the DNA that they had from the killer against all of those other samples. And they did that, but it, it was not a match because at that point, Drips was not a felon. So typically that's the end of the line. Like you have to have something to compare the DNA that you have to, to say, yes, it's this person and this sample is the same. On this, what they used is uh, like a genealogy mapping tool. So if you think of something like Ancestry.com or any of those sites where you spit in a tube or you like swab your cheek and send it off to learn more about your ancestry and who you might be related to and, and where your ancestors came from. Uh, some relative of Brian Drips did that herself and they were able to match up the DNA against that and say, well, there's a, you know, I don't recall the exact number, but there's a very high likelihood that whoever left this DNA behind at the crime scene is a close, close relative of this person who spit in a tube and sent it off. So from there, they were able to triangulate down. That woman cooperated with police. They contacted her and told her what they were up to, essentially. Uh, and they were able to take a look at all of her male relatives because they knew it was a man was their suspect. Uh, and, and sort of control for the right age, the right location, figure out who might have been around in Idaho Falls at that point who was male and of the right age, and they zeroed in on Brian Drips. But still, I mean, that's because it is the likeliest close DNA match. That's not enough, right? So uh, it was sort of detective movie-esque. They were surveilling him. Um, at that point, because they were hoping he would he would do something where they could get DNA from him to test against the the actual sample, the original sample, uh, to have the point where they could say yes, this is a hundred percent match. And as detectives were following him around, unknown, uh, kind of watching him from afar, at one point he was smoking a cigarette and he threw down the cigarette butt. And to hear the detective tell it, uh, at that point he drips walked away around the corner, and the detective actually had to run out in traffic and dodge cars and kind of have a have a pretty extreme moment trying to collect the cigarette butt safely and bring it back to the lab where they could test it. But he was able to get it before it got run over by a car, before it blew away in the wind, and they ran it against the original DNA and it came back as a match. So at that point, uh, you know, he had not yet been arrested, but at that point the case was essentially all wrapped up because they they got a warrant for him based on the strength of that. And I believe they sat down with him and, and said, look, you know, we have your DNA. We have the DNA from the apartment that night and, and we know it's you. And at that point, he was just like, yes, it was me. He confessed. A genetic genealogist, Cece Moore, has been working on Angie's case for years. She says through genetic genealogy and the website GEDmatch, she was able to look for common ancestors and overlaps in family trees. She says she found three genetic networks and those all converged down to one couple, meaning the suspect they were looking for came from that couple. 
That, based on other research, eventually led her to DRIPS. Greg Hampikian, a Boise State biologist and founder of the Idaho Innocence Project, says he's been hoping for a break in the case for a long time. We've been on this case, I think, 13 years. We changed the law in Idaho to allow for testing in this case. Uh, we've been testing DNA for years. It looks like this is it. This is the end of the road for this case, I think. Angie's mom, Carol, saying it's been an overwhelming journey. I gasped yesterday. Uh, today, just hearing his name, um, I don't know, I guess I got my air supply back, right? It was a shock. It, I think it was a shock for everybody. So he confessed, so there was no trial, right? Yeah, uh, he ultimately pleaded guilty, which... I mean, at that point, if, if your DNA is all over a crime scene and it's a 100% match, that's that's a hard thing to argue against. Um, there was not anywhere near that strength of ev- evidence with Chris Tapp. Uh, so at that point, he was charged with murder, with the rape, and ultimately took a plea deal, which I believe took the death penalty off the table. Because originally, I mean, every, every first-degree murder case in Idaho – um, could be a capital case. And prosecutors have to opt into that. They have to say, we want to uh, pursue the death penalty for this. But that was absolutely on the table in this case. So he ended up taking a plea deal that was uh, 20 years to life. That was both sides agreed basically to ask for the same thing. So that's life in prison, but after 20 years, the possibility of parole. One thing about this case that his lawyer uh, talked about in the sentencing is, I guess, Brian Tripps is in fairly poor health at this point in his life. He's 55 and has had a number of heart attacks and other other ailments. And his defense attorney basically said, well, this is a life sentence for him. He doesn't have another 20 years. Uh, he'll He'll likely die before that parole date ever comes up. And obviously, just because you were eligible for parole doesn't mean you would would get it. So in this case, it's essentially a life sentence. And was the original suspect, was he exonerated eventually? Yes. So after the arrest of Brian Drips, after the uh, DNA evidence came out, it was clear at that point that Chris Tapp was never the guy. And uh, even Brian Drips in his confession with detectives said, no, I acted alone. It was There was no one else involved. It was just me. And at that point, Chris Tapp was able to go back to court and a judge threw out the charges against him, basically said, we were wrong all those years ago. The jury was wrong. You're innocent of this crime, which is, I, that does not happen very often. There are very few exonerations and especially in a murder case. So even though at that point he was out of prison, he was living his life, that had to feel like a a weight lifts off you because all those years somebody thinks you're a murderer, the world thinks you're a murderer, and to be able to stand up and look a judge in the face while they say, we were wrong, it wasn't you, it was never you, had to feel pretty good. Christopher Tapp has been exonerated in connection with the murder of Angie Dodge. His name is cleared following the arrest of a Caldwell man now charged with murder. A couple of hours ago, Tapp held a press conference outside of the courtroom and called this exoneration a, quote, new beginning. Now, this comes after Tapp spent more than two decades in prison after he was convicted. Last month, we spoke with Tapp while he was uh, with the Idaho Innocence Project at Boise State about the benefits of DNA testing and how it was the only thing that set him free. It's amazing. You know, there's wrongful convictions every day that, you know, happen through the country and even here locally, you know, and it's an amazing thing that programs like this are here 
because that's the biggest thing is being able to look at other cases that need to be looked at and to be able to be seen instead of just, you know, through the closed eyes of, you know, the criminal justice system and how, how it is. And these programs are amazing. And what was Brian Drips up to all these years? Do we know about his life? Yeah, in between the, the murder in 1996 and his arrest uh, just a couple years ago, it doesn't seem like he committed any more crimes. I mean, maybe one small thing here or there, but no felonies, uh, certainly no other rapes, no other murders that, that we can tell. Um, seems like he was a family man. He, he got married, uh, had several children, worked a job in construction, uh, occasionally traveled around with his job. The, the defense attorney showed a slideshow of essentially his life past that point with him taking his kids on vacation or spending time with his friends or spending time with his with his dogs, uh, hanging out with his family members. Uh, he lived a really mundane life, honestly, after that. And you think of someone who can break into a sleeping woman's apartment and rape and cut her throat as someone who is going to be maybe a psycho all their life. And it seems like absent this one episode, he just carried that around for all these years and uh, didn't kill anyone else. Brian Drips lived across the street. Uh, did he know her outside of just being a neighbor or does this seem like a random thing? He he knew who she was. He recognized her. Um, I don't think he broke into a random apartment. He was targeting her in particular, uh, but they were not close friends or anything. They, they didn't spend time together from, from my understanding. He, uh, he knew who she was. He knew she was her, his neighbor. All right. So justice for Angie Dodge after 25 years. One thing I will say is that came up in the, in the sentencing. Uh, her family was allowed to make victim impact statements, kind of talk about how this crime has affected their lives. And something we heard both from Carol Dodge, Angie's mother and her brothers was that, well, closure isn't ever really enough. Closure doesn't undo what happened, and they're still living with this every day. I mean, the Brian Drips going to prison is not a, a Band-Aid over, over this wound. It's it's better than nothing. It's better than him getting away with it forever with Chris Tapp being innocent in prison for all of his life, but it doesn't undo the damage that's been done to their family. All right, Katie Terhune at KTVB in Idaho. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. We're here every weekday with new episodes, Monday through Friday. We also have a weekly show covering cases around the country, True Crime Chronicles. Check it out today wherever you listen to podcasts. That's True Crime Chronicles. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. 